0: Hello, fellow watch lovers, nerds, enthusiasts, or however you identify. You're listening to 40 and 20, the Watch Clicker podcast with your hosts, Andrew and my good friend Everett. Here, we talk about watches, food, drinks, life, and other things we like. Everett, how are you?
1: I'm good. Andrew, do you know the difference between a fiddle and a violin?
0: The way you play it?
1: Uh, no. So a, a violin has strings, but a fiddle has strangs. That's huh. <laughs> uh, a good way to start the day.
0: I'm doing all right. I
1: am. Uh, I'm a little hot because it's warm. It is warm, but that's okay. It's this nice. This room doesn't get good HVAC. in
0: yeah. it. I don't know
1: why. A little cold in the winter, a little hot in the summer. Yeah, that's all right. That's just what that's it is. All right. I'm doing good. I've got a beer. I, I haven't cracked it yet, but I've got a beer. I had some pizza for dinner tonight. Mm. Hmm. I tri tip for dinner. Delicious tri tip, which I got to try, which was really well done. It's the
0: way to do it. So I uh, had it in the freezer. Sam wasn't going to be home until after dinner, and she's not really a big red meat eater. So I was like, ooh, I know what I'm going to do. Thought it out, gave it a little dry rub, back-sealed it, threw it in the sous vide at 134 for like four hours, pulled it out, gave it a rub down of a different spice seasoning, and threw it on the grill at like 600 Hmm. for about four minutes per side. Let it rest. Ooh, ooh, it's good. Do they make a sous vide for thawing meat? I don't know. Hmm. When I cook frozen, I just add time.
1: Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah, you know, you know, I think that it would be because instead of heating the water, you'd be cooling the water. So it would be a that would be a complicated machine. Yeah, like freon or something. Yeah, maybe we know. need to do that. Maybe we need to market this.
0: I don't know if there's value in it because every single food service industry that doesn't have a health inspector on scene just has a bucket of stuff under a faucet.
1: (laughs) (laughs) But for home, like want to thaw that chicken in 20 minutes? You'll love my nuts. Yeah. That's what we'd call it too. (laughs) We call it you love my nuts. Yeah. Yeah. I dig it. I dig it. You know, if we were to do this, you know where we would get
0: this thing made? I I have a couple ideas. Okay. All USA. 100% USA materials, manufacturing, assembly, and hand delivered by bicycle messenger. MSRP, $1,173.99. Three easy payments. Yeah, pretty easy. (laughs) Of $1,173. Yeah, and then, you know, however long it takes our bicycle messenger to get to you. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Uh n- no, we'd probably get it we'd probably get it made in in
1: Asia somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. That's probably where we'd get it made. It's where things are made now. That's where things are made, including watches. And tonight we're talking about watches, specifically Chinese made or Asian made watches. We will probably If you find this appropriate, just forgive us in advance. We will probably interchangeably use Asia and China at times because China's huge and it's the dominant force. Yeah. Um, But we, we may say
0: China when we actually mean Asia occasionally tonight. Yeah. Is that a fair caveat? I think so. I didn't think it was an important caveat because there are certainly outliers, but by and large, Chinese manufacturing so my thinking behind this episode, we've kind of teased it a little bit and we wanted to do a little bit more work to iron it out. And we talked to Mike Martini about this and how kind of China is influencing the Swiss industry. And I wanted to like actually devote some time to China's impact on the watch industry, not as an aside through the lens of the Swiss industry, but just China's impact. Because if not for Chinese manufacturing and the internet, we don't have the robust watch industry that we have today. I think that's right. Or at least accurate. And without the Chinese manufacturing industry, we don't have the watch industry we have today. Like not just robust, we don't have any accessibility. We don't have any of it. China's manufacturing is what makes it possible.
1: Yeah. I, I mean to, to put a point on to put a point on this. Siegel, the entity that we refer to as Siegel, which is not perhaps an entity in the way we think about entities in the Western business world. Uh, but the entity Siegel makes approximately five times Every year, the amount of movements that ETA makes. So, Siegel's movement manufacturing is five times that of ETA or ETA.
0: That's significant. That's right. That's right. And I think so. Since since, since we have Siegel top of mind, that's a brand, and we're air quoting brand right now because it's interesting. It's not a brand, nor is it not a brand. It's kind of like a thing that a bunch of different companies are working toward. Very much the same in the Swiss watch world. But as opposed to one factory just making hands and being the hand specialists, we get a bunch of companies who are churning out the same generally specced almost identical product, all under the same label. Or, closer to the Swiss model, one company's churning out cases, one company's churning out dials, and then these manufacturers, who are companies in and of themselves operating under the umbrella of Siegel, have a centralized assembly plant, and that's where they're coming out.
1: I think it's best understood... Th- well, so first, we'll just we'll caveat anything else we say tonight with the fact that neither one of us are experts or even really all of that familiar with Chinese business practices. So we're going to, we're going to say things that are maybe true or sort of true true or true ish. Uh, But in, in any event, I think for the purposes of our conversation, we're going to be close enough. Now what I was going to say, I think the seagull, Entity would be sort of best understood as a kind of magnetic, cohesive licensing slash contractor arrangement, mm-hmm. wherein the contractors who are actually doing the production, sort of like a franchisee, have the abilities to by way of their license to market and sell the products that they're making under license. Mm -hmm. I I, I think that's the easiest way to understand it, but this is happening at a comprehensive scale, you you know, sort of like McDonald's McDonald's owns land and it has a bunch of independent business owners that it uses to sell its products. Mm -hmm. I, I think Siegel's kind of a similar scenario, right? I think so.
0: So, With that kind of loose understanding of Siegel, kind of loose understanding of how Chinese manufacturing has affected and impacted the Swiss watchmaking world. Let's consider what that means at scale, right? So we have the big five who we know are absolutely using Chinese manufacturing. And sure, they might be using Chinese manufacturing owned by a Swiss company, using Swiss machines, supervised by a Swiss operations manager, but the sort of lack of labor laws, probably environmental protection laws, Make it significantly cheaper. Yeah, less
1: onerous regulatory, mm
0: -hmm. a a less onerous regulatory scheme. This driving down of cost, price, not driving down, this just cheaper price, led to people realizing that they could do it too. Right? So, within that world of Chinese manufacturing, everything's affordable-ish with a sliding scale, just like Swiss manufacturing. And you get this big, wide gap where everything's of varying qualities and somehow people figure out that they can go to China and they can hire manufacturers to start producing their own stuff. And we see it in the early days of micro-brands, where the brands are Getting into China, somehow, right? There's so much water on your front.
1: Yeah. Uh, I just took a big drink of water
0: and spilled. A lot. About a half a cup down my shirt. Individuals are going to China, whether whether through business connections, whether through industry connections, and they're able to start getting their own stuff manufactured. And this kind of leads manufacturing companies down this new road that hadn't previously existed with catalogs, right? And we're covering a whole lot, so I'm gonna gonna slow down a little bit. What do you wanna talk about with the affordability of Chinese manufacturing and accessibility of Chinese manufacturing? As somebody who has launched a brand, but also somebody who has enjoyed many Chinese-made watches,
1: Maybe I don't understand the question
0: entirely. When launching a brand and you're faced with your, your kind of initial choices of where am I going to get this watch made? Mm -hmm. I know you looked at a lot of options Mm -hmm. and there were a lot of selling points for the reason that you went with the organization that you did to get your watch manufactured. Purely monetarily, If you didn't have those business relationships with your with these Oems, these manufacturers Mm -hmm. that you used, where do you go to get your watch manufactured?
1: Well, yeah. So it's interesting. We talked about this a little bit. We talked about this a little bit with the the barstool sports uh, fellow, blanking on his name right now, but the brick watch company, right? Oh, Fat uh, Zuckerberg. Fat Zuckerberg. That's right. Uh, we talked about this in the context of, you you know, he found a place, basically a white label company that is likely making watches primarily through Chinese outlets. And it's sort of like a catalog option, right? Mm -hmm. You, you go to a catalog, you, you look at the options. They have, these are the parts we make. Um, me being in the industry had, had a different set of contacts. You know, I think we had initially talked to um, Eric from EMG, longtime friend of the show, good friend of mine and said, Hey, do you have any ideas? He had set me up with a few different people to talk to. Um, You, you know, at, at, at the end of the day, it was a different world for me. And so I didn't r- really have to try to figure out who to talk to. I was mm-hmm. able to just call friends and say, who do I talk to? And they put me in touch with the right people. But I think it's a different it's a different calculus if you're just a guy sitting on your couch who doesn't know brand owners and is like, well, how do I get started with this? Right. Uh, and and frankly, I don't know what I would do. What I would say my experience was is that there was no hesitation from any of the folks I talked to. to About pricing and and really it wasn't even a, a point of a point of discussion my gut is my experience has led me to believe that I should say most of these OEMs and most of the factories that the OEMs are working with have a very wide range of qualities they can produce things at quality of parts that they can procure. Mm -hmm. I don't gather that there was ever a time where, well, that's not true. There was one time with an OEM that we eventually went up parting ways with where I realized like they're not willing to do the hard things. But for that one moment, I've never felt like there was anything that I wanted to achieve that couldn't be achieved for a price. And so, at the end of the day, that's what it comes down to. Um, you, you know, w- one of the things that we've talked to our OEM about is quality of finishing. So, like, like for instance, brushing. In order to do brushing at a, a better rate than your average sort of, say, $400, $350, $400 micro, micro brand, you've got to have special lapping wheels right you've Mm got to have special wheels and special equipment to run those wheels and so that sort of thing is a limitation either the factory you're working with has it or it doesn't our oem has just procured nicer equipment to do that stuff with but it comes at a cost right it comes at a cost to us if we want to use it it comes at a cost to the oem certainly because they had to procure it um, it comes at a cost to the factory. The factory has to be trained and has to understand how to use it. So uh, everything can be achieved. You just have to have the, the right tools around you. And I think this is the perhaps the biggest misconception about Chinese manufacturing is that Chinese manufacturing is not up to some sort of objective standard that could be found elsewhere in perhaps white europe right there is not a limitation to what can be done in china in so much as they're just doing things that are less expensive and thus the techniques and the equipment they use is more suited to less expensive
0: products and they're making fast pennies instead of slow quarters that's right That's right. And so looking at, looking
1: at some of these companies, you know, for instance, Peacock or Atelier Wen, um, you know, we've got companies that can do very, very nice things. Chinese companies Mm -hmm. making watches in China, they can do very, very nice things. There's this misconception that China's incapable of doing the high end shit. It's just not true. China can do high end shit. That's just not what people go to China for generally speaking. Why? Yeah, I I it's it's a sort of an aroberus, Andrew, right? Wow. Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's yeah. the word we went with. Huh? I said it. it. You know, we want nice things. Nice things come from Switzerland. And so if we want nice things, we better buy Swiss made things and and, but if, if we're looking for nice things, we're looking in Switzerland, right? Like it's this perpetuating cycle, right? Which has not stopped, for instance, Peacock from making these wonderful Giosh dials. It's not stopped Hanju Watch Company from making very, very adequate mechanical movements. It's not actually stopping the Chinese companies from doing the things. But people aren't going to China to look for those things because you don't go to China to look for those things. If you want nice, you go Swiss. If you want less nice, you go to China.
0: What about what other countries are getting missed? Because I think of I think of Seiko. Oh, sure, who's doing just phenomenal stuff? How is like I'm wondering why there was no. There's been no booming OEM industry in Japan seeking after that Grand Seiko esque. Finish in non Grand Seiko brands. I I think I think Japan faces the same problem that company
1: that countries like Germany or the United States, for instance, face, which is that labor's expensive in Japan. Relatively, mm-hmm. Japan's got inexpensive mechanical movements, not necessarily because of Japan's capabilities, but because of the incredible scale that Japan has been able to, the incredible market share and thus scale that Japan's able to make these things in. So anybody listening to this podcast, I I wager every single person listening to this podcast right now has worn or owned, probably owned a watch with the Japanese movement in it.
0: Right. I'd be shocked Just if they didn't period. Yeah.
1: And that is a Testament to what, that industry has done and how pervasive it is. With that said, I don't think it makes sense for the average micro brand, for instance, to go seek out case finishing in Japan, because it is going to be outrageously expensive. Mm -hmm. And it's maybe not something that's going to be all that much better than things you can get done in other places.
0: Um Switzerland is the first place it comes to mind where fine case finishing is kind of the expectation i mean i I brought a a pile of watches. I brought two chinese made watches, a Japanese, and two Swiss That thing fell uh, and barring one and I think I think there's actually we see a really interesting uh So you're holding up right now
1: a Traska Commuter and Mm -hmm. an EMG Nemo. Yeah. I I think there's an interesting growth. Both almost certainly cases made in China. Yes.
0: In the probably four or five-year delta in finishing. And it's hard to say if that's just a development of technology or an actual price difference because there is a slight price difference in these watches. Um, Mm. But I think about like... The Seiko. And oh. this is just a Sarb, right? This is not an expensive watch. The finishing on it is phenomenal. Yeah, scale. It, and I'm wondering why Japan can produce only their own stuff. I mean, they're producing but, an enormous scale in well, Seiko. Let's talk about this. You've brought up a really interesting point. So, And I think I have some insight here. So I
1: have been in touch. I have talked, had conversations with the people behind the, the, the factories behind both the Traska and the EMG. So I have talked to the OEMs behind both of those brands and without giving away anything private or confidential, I can say that those are two institutions with drastically different capabilities. So when I talked about our OEM, who's not the OEM for either of those companies, having just produced or just procured l- lapping uh, equipment that is a, of a higher grade when you look at a company like Traska and the OEMs they're using and a company like EMG and the the OEMs they were using at the time the Nemo was made the capabilities are different right mm-hmm. now EMG is a, a company that gets to make choices and they went with that company for any number of probably very good reasons right and Traska, you know, Traska is known for their pretty decent case finishing and, you know, certainly their hardening. Um, these are things that are variable, right? Mm-hmm. And then you look at a company like Seiko, which is culturally a very different company, much more internal, much more keeping in the keep it in house. Generally speaking, not doing a ton of white labeling, although Seiko is such a giant
0: company. There's is, so much Seiko white labeling th- that they actually do a, a fair number of. I'm sure they white, white label, label their own shit on accident. Yeah, that's perhaps true.
1: It, but, you, you know, that's not really a resource for that sort of thing. They are able to make, you know, so probably the SARB in 20, 2009, say, they probably made about. 80,000 SARBs, which are all the SARBs that were ever made, and they were Perhaps, able to yeah. do it so inexpensively because they just did it all at once. Mm-hmm. And so they have access to this humongous manufacturing operation natively, internally, that they can get finishing like that. That's, a, that's why Seiko is still today. Such a tremendous value when you compare Seiko watches at three hundred bucks to say a Traska at five hundred bucks. I, I think you get a better watch with Trasca at five hundred bucks than a Seiko at three hundred bucks. Mm-hmm. But the differences are teeny.
0: Are they two hundred dollar differences?
1: Yeah, that's right. Seiko is still at three hundred bucks the best value in watches, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. It's no doubt about it. People lament the the death of the affordable Seiko. And as we've talked about on the show ad nauseum, including our very good Seiko episode, which I can't remember that Will came in and talked with us. That's a myth. Seiko is still the entry-level affordable king today,
0: right now. And will continue to be.
1: And will continue to be because of the scale in which they were able to produce watches. Yeah. And, and, and you look at a company like EMG making these tiny little orders versus, well, actually relatively big orders. But uh, v- but then you look at a company like Traska making slightly bigger orders, right? It's all about scale. Mm-hmm. It's all about scale, Andrew.
0: So, oh, shoot, what'd you say? I had a thought about uh, OEMs.
1: Well, we talked about the different OEMs and the different co- capabilities and... How does the OEMs get bigger? than oh. get
0: <clears throat> when we're talking about OEMs and your relate in the OEMs relationship to a manufacturer because the OEM is a, is essentially like a, a broker, yeah, who who works with these manufacturers with these manufacturing facilities to fill an order. How much say does that OEM have in like, hey, this is technology that you can. Get to be able to fill this order, and then as a result, you can fill this order for everyone else. Is that just a manufacturer's desire to to meet the need?
1: You know, Andrew, I I think this really depends. OEMs are a little bit like, um, I I don't know. I'm trying to I'm trying to come up with an option. It it is it is not like a, a. custom or it's not like a one size fits all operation right mm-hmm. one of the things that we discovered pretty quickly when we were talking with oems when foster was talking with oems is that these companies have and i'll just say our oem has has taught, communicated to us that they prefer not to refer to themselves as oems because they're thinking that they're, they're thinking they're doing something different and and whether that's true or not doesn't matter the The point being, there's an idea about what an OEM is, and that can vary drastically based on who you're working with. So Mm -hmm. what we found in talking to these different companies is that the thing that you want more than anything is an OEM that's willing to say to you, if we don't know how to do this, we're committed to figuring it out. And, you know, uh, again, n- n- one of the things we've talked about uh, uh, with Foster a lot is requesting a 48-click bezel, getting pushback, um, getting pushback, and then having our OEM work with us to procure tech to make that work. Um, the <clears throat> people have joked with us about this, both to our faces and behind our back on the internet, which we can still see you guys. Um <laughs> <laughs> not if it's on reddit but you know the issue is the bigger the clicks are so the fewer the clicks are the bigger the mechanical parts are mm-hmm. which means a, a variance has a bigger effect so we talk about seiko's aligned bezel alignment issues all the time if if and and that's on a hundred, oftentimes on a hundred and twenty-click bezel. If you can see a tiny little difference on a hundred and twenty-click bezel, imagine how much bigger that difference is with a 48 click, right? We're talking about fewer than half, like a third mm-hmm. of the amount of clicks. You're introducing an incredibly 15 degrees. That's right. You're in, in, introducing this incredible margin of error. And so when when they pushed back on us and said, we really can't do this. We said, well, we understand we can do an insert, but we'd really like you guys to try to see if this can happen. And if, and they did at the end of the day, they did. We got a one, we got our one piece bezel, we got 48 clicks and we have had, I think of the 300 watches, we've had like four that didn't work and we were able to get new bezels and get them back out. So, and and we can eat that, right? Yeah. That, that's something that's that could be... That's a small rate. That's right. We were talking about, like, be, without this technology, like maybe a 35 to 40% rejection rate, Whew. which is just not manageable, and, and we no, were going to have to eat it, right? Yeah. All that to say, that's what you want. You want the fact... You want the OEM that's saying, we don't know how to do this, but we will figure it out.
0: And this is pioneering technology in... Chinese manufacturing. I don't think you've been shy about the fact that your watch has been manufactured in China. Yeah, no, it's a real thing, right? Are there any Swiss parts? I don't know. I don't think so. I don't think so. You didn't even get like Swiss sapphire or something just to bougie it up? No, it's an acrylic crystal. I would like Swiss sapphire.
1: And actually, they make all acrylic crystals in the heat fields of Scotland. Something you might not know. So, we actually have Scottish acrylic crystals. That's where they grow? Yeah, that's right.
0: Cool. <laughs> okay. So, well, let's so so we've talked a little bit about your experience with Chinese um, manufacturing, which is something that <clears throat> by and large wasn't accessible to the normal person 15 years ago.
1: Or, or, or to the extent it was, it, it, didn't, it maybe didn't seem that way as someone unfamiliar with the.
0: 15 years ago, there were people doing this. Yeah. Like five of them. Now, everyone's doing it. Yeah. And I, I want to talk about catalog washes. Because as you talked about earlier. R- rebrick. Yeah. Brick or take your pick. There's there are many out there. Uh Dave Portnoy. Yeah, it that's his name. To... Fat Mark Zuckerberg. Yeah. Look if you haven't if you
1: haven't looked at a picture of Portnoy next to a picture of Zuckerberg, you'll know what Andrew's talking the
0: about. The first time I saw him, I really I like I didn't get it. I was like, "When did he get so fat?" He was doing one of those pizza review videos, and I was like, "This is what he's doing with his time now." <laughs> when did Zuckerberg get so fat? And he's why gotten, is he reviewing pizzas? Yeah, that's what he does now. Turns out, he's actually a BJJ practitioner and just had a pretty successful showing at a tournament. Um, uh, Portnoy did not Portnoy. Oh, Zuckerberg. No. Portnoy eats whole pizzas and has a <laughs> shitty watch brand. Um, and it's fat Mark Zuckerberg. Uh. <coughs> catalog watches. So over the last 15 years, there's been an explosion of people who are having or choosing to have watches manufactured, whether it's a single run, whether it's a catalog of like a, a brand catalog, which has given this Chinese watch manufacturing industry, this huge breadth of knowledge. You know, we see R and D and true tech development in in watches through yeah. these OEMs, like this is this is a competitive, cutting edge manufacturing world. Yeah, it's just cheaper. Yeah, but catalog watches. So you know, and I think I think really Kickstarter is probably not necessarily to blame, but really the driving force behind this. We get people who can invest a little bit of capital go to China, whether they they go personally, whether they know somebody, whether they they go through the grapevine, whether they use one of the two or three OEMs that was available, they got a watch made. And they were like, man, I really like this. I made the watch that I want. Now I want to sell it because I'd like to make some money. And suddenly these manufacturers have these enormous catalogs of watches they've made, things that they use, because it's... I mean, I imagine that they retain the IP and the ability to produce. And if they don't retain the IP, they retain the molds and the specs and who gives a shit. And that changed the whole landscape of the watch world. 50 years ago, a brand might show up and they might fold. Not nearly at the same rate of the last decade. How many watches can you come watch brands? Do you think you can come up with the top of your head that did either not a run or just a single run and are gone? Yeah. A lot. Dozens. Yeah. A lot. And some were great. Some were totally unique and others. It's like, well, I'm glad
1: that died. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and watches that seemed like they were going to happen then didn't happen. Yeah. It's, it's not, uncommon you, you know I, I think i'd like you to clarify a little bit because you you've you've brought up this term catalog watches and, and and i think i know what you're talking about i think what you're talking about is the brick watch
0: i'm talking about somebody who wants to build a watch they contact an oem and they build a bear a watch yeah yeah they've got choices hey here's your 150 spec sheets for cases and if you choose that case Here's your 150 options for bezels, dials, movements, crystals, bracelets. You, you know,
1: I actually don't think in 2023 we're seeing a lot of this. We're not now, but we were in 2015, 2016, five, seven years ago, yeah. That's right. I I think we're seeing more of this. One of the things Christian and I have talked about a lot as we've moved through this process is how educated this niche consumer base is and and it's undeniably educated you know you've got people like us Andrew and Everett and Will the watch clicker you, you know we've got all of these folks who have dedicated such a tremendous percentage of their daily allotment of time to becoming educated and sharing that information and and it's not just us right There are, I think since we started doing this, what, we're at episode 240, so almost five years ago Mm -hmm. now, when we started doing this, there were a handful of podcasts. In that time, I would say maybe 40 podcasts have come and perhaps gone. Um, The point being, there is this incredible community of folks that are dedicated to educating themselves and by osmosis perhaps those around them about this stuff this consumer base is, is like knives or like any other or
0: cars or any other obsession we're, hobby we're
1: just too smart for a catalog watch to really survive so in order for catalog watches to survive they have to do that by other other channels you know perhaps QVC or or whatever
0: barstool sports <laughs> that's right that's right if you put a rolex logo on it's nine grand yeah that's right i want one i would like to get one i just don't want to spend that kind of money for it because so, i imagine it's just hot trash oh no yeah don't get one of those it's it's well I, i'm sure it's a fine watch you, you know when, when that they're falls. ugly though that's the problem is yeah. that they're they're just objectively unattractive i don't even know how ugly they are I mean,
1: when that whole thing happened, one of the things, so there was a lot of stuff that got spread around on social, which was just plain not true, you know, a lot lot about, you know, oh, well, this is a quartz movement. Well, they actually had automatics too. You you know, there was just a ton of stuff that just wasn't true. This is a $68 watch. No, it's not. It's maybe a $200 watch, Uh, (laughs) right? You you know, there was a lot of stuff that was circulated that really kind of, I don't think added to the conversation, but but at the end of the day, people were right, which is that the margins on that watch, based on what it was, pretty transparently so, were just not reasonable, and the market won't sustain that sort of thing. So, um, I, I, sorry to steal your thunder on that, Andrew. I, I actually just don't know how much of a, of a factor those types of watches are today. They're,
0: they're not anymore, but they were at the onset. That's those were a huge driver in the proliferation of this small watch industry. And then we got people who were true designers who suddenly had a place where they could reasonably go and have their designs come into reality. Because prior to the ability to access Chinese manufacturing, a brand like Brew, a brand like Laurier, a brand like Astor and Banks just simply isn't going to be able to drum up the capital to go into the Swiss watchmaking valleys and say, hi, guys. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I actually think a bigger...
1: So I I, I don't think you're wrong, but but I think maybe a bigger influence on the current microbrand market was folks like Yabokis and Jake from Dagaz. Mm-hmm. And... um you you know, Bill Yao and...
0: Modding's uh, a huge part of it. uh,
1: I I actually think that's the more important part of it because when you look at... So Yoboki's is this very successful business, I think at this point, that spent the first 10 years of its existence with a photo bucket catalog that was a nightmare to navigate. You know, it's clearly this guy with very little like like modern business acumen who's just found a channel by which he's making these very custom parts and selling them dave murphy you know uh Mm -hmm. uh not a business well he is a businessman but not running his watch products like uh a a real business Mm -hmm. But it's running it
0: like an Etsy shop. S-
1: that's right. That's right. Jake from Daggaz, maybe a little bit more cutting edge, but it's kind of the same deal, right? So I think... Uncle by, Scraps. That's right. I, I think by way, yes, Uncle Seiko, right? By way of seeing these folks doing this thing in this like not highly polished manner, right? These are obviously just regular people and they're on the fucking forums talking about this stuff. Mm-hmm. I think that is, for a lot of folks, the the real beginning. When you see someone like, you, you know, Dave Murphy's obviously making his own parts, and he's a professional screw machinist, which is a, a different deal. Yeah. But when you see Jake from Dagaz making watches, it's like, oh, well, this is just a dude. Mm-hmm. Like, if he can do that, there's a way for it to be done. He's just a dude. Yeah. This can, this can, somebody could do this. I could do this. I could do this, right? More so than the catalog watches. I think that is the genesis of this
0: industry. Catalog watches open the door though. Perhaps, yeah. And and catalogs and modding all kind of come to, they, they come to the surface at the same time where people are modding watches. And they're like, well, why mod it when I can just, have it made to look the way that I want it to. Right. Right. Cause that those things are happening contemporary, con, contemporaneously. Yeah. That's the one. And suddenly then people are like, well, I I have an idea. I know how to make a watch look good. Let's put a bird on it. Let's put a bird on it and send it off to China. And then they're going to send me back some watches. None of it's possible. Without both Chinese manufacturing and access to those supply lines. Yeah, that's right. It is a game changer. One more thing. One more thing that I have to talk about. He's referencing his notes, you guys. I am. This is exciting when this happens for me. With that, so we're going to move away from small brands and we're going to go to slightly bigger brands. Let's say like Christopher Ward and above. I don't know if Christopher Ward is having any manufacturing done in China. My assumption is that they probably are. Yeah, probably. Because of laws Regulate what you can put on your dial: USA made, Swiss made. The what, I don't, what's the German uh, six o'clock badge? Doesn't matter. A glashuhta. Yeah, uh, it creates this really interesting opportunity to use, and almost a necessity to use more expensive and better stuff. Elsewhere to drive up your value of what's being made in the necessary country against what's being made outside of that necessary country. Which is kind of cool. Because now you can save a bunch of money on getting your cases made. Which before were this huge investment. And now you've got a bunch of money freed up. And you want to drive more Swiss stuff into your Swiss made watch. And this is specific to the Swiss industry. That's, I think, what gives these companies the freedom to do higher level shit. In Switzerland, and almost a need to. For more money spent in Switzerland into that watch.
1: Yeah, what was the Chris, what was the, the, what did Christopher Ward call its hour chime watch with that beautiful spring
0: it's um Belcanto. Belcanto, that's right. Yeah, you, you know Delcanto? Belcanto? I think it was Belcanto. That's a watch that's probably
1: made in a in, in very small quantities and probably made pretty hands-on directly by Christopher Ward. I, I, I think your point is that when a company is getting margins by way of saving labor and production costs in other places, it gives them the ability to be more hands-on and more directly involved in the production. And and I I don't think that's wrong. Um, You you know, this, this industry we're in is tough. So we've had Mike France on the show twice now, and he's talked about this both times he's been here. But standard margins. Let's say you're making playing cards. Let's say you start a business, you're going to make playing cards. I think the expectation of a company making playing cards would be something like a 6 or 7 to 1 m- margin rate, right? So th- so they would be charging 7 times their cost per unit in for every unit out, right? So if it cost a dollar to make that deck of cards and get it in their hands, they would be charging the
0: consumer $7,
1: right? And if you can go scale, maybe you go less. So you make, you know. Playing
0: cards are pretty easy to scale, I'd imagine.
1: That's right, so you make 10,000 decks and you sell them to Walgreens. And maybe you only need to do four to one or whatever. But generally speaking, for direct sales, if you're doing the lion's share of distri- distribution and actually getting the product into people's hands, you're going to want to have a fairly high rate of return. And I think certainly we see that with companies like Tag Hoyer. We're seeing that with companies like Tissot. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you know, we're seeing these pretty big margin rates, right? Like a Tag Hoyer is. I'm guessing here. I don't have any data to back this up. I'm guessing like a Tag Heuer Aqua Racer that you buy for two thousand bucks probably costs Tag Heuer at scale two hundred bucks to make, maybe two fifty. Yeah, right. And so they're getting a big rate of return. They've got they've got marketing and other things that go into that,
0: but for per unit, right? We we without without including all of the overhead.
1: Yes, Uh, probably including overhead. So you think two fifty is gonna? I think before before marketing, you're probably looking at an eight or a nine to one guessing. Now a company, yeah,
0: before marketing. Okay, I accept.
1: Mike France has been super transparent about this. That their goal is a three to one rate of return. Mm -hmm. I will tell you that Foster. Right now, we would love to be at three to one. But at the end of the day, we're at less than two to one
0: because people aren't going to buy your watch at three to one.
1: Exactly. And, and so, what we, what you, know, what you can see getting into this industry is that it, you're going to grind. You, you know, I, I don't want to share, and I, I know a lot of companies are pretty closed off about the information. I'm not, and so if you ever have questions, just ask. I'm an open book, but. I know a lot of companies, big micro brands, the big micro brands, the ones you're thinking about right now, as I say these words, are selling maybe two to 4,000 watches a year, mm-hmm. which is not very... Now, just do the math, you guys. Just do the fucking math, right? Now hire a couple people and pay somebody to do marketing and pay somebody else to do distribution And oh, yeah, we got to do returns and we got to do quality control and we have to pay a watchmaker on contract, you know, several thousand dollars per month because you've selling 2000 watches, which is something like 150 watches per month. And some percentage of those are coming back four or five watches. Mm -hmm. You are spending money there. It is very difficult to make this work. At two to one.
0: But Chinese manufacturing made it possible. And made it almost an expectation. That's right. Because
1: we... It's another... Last, this is another Ouroboros, Andrew.
0: Yeah. In the last five years, we got really accustomed to good shit at 350 bucks, Because people who didn't know what they were doing were like, Oh, this watch cost me $150 to make. If I make... $175 for every watch that I sell. That's a really great return. Yeah. Two to one is awesome. Why wouldn't I want to do that? This is a side hustle. Yeah. And then they're like, Oh, that that was, that really worked. Yeah. I'll do it again. And now everyone's doing it. We have these 300 to $500 watches that are really well made. that are great watches and we we as watch consumers really like because they're a good value 40%
1: less this is a good value yeah You know, there was a company that came out a few years ago, Andrew, called GM Lang Watches. Uh, They had a good social media presence. Huge social media presence. Um, They had a a pretty killer watch. Uh, You know, it wasn't a one-to-one, but it was similar in a lot of ways to the Monta Triumph. It had a similar feel, kind of the way the case flowed. Um, The general aesthetic of the watch felt very Monta. And we got a review sample. Mm -hmm. And you and I both remarked at... Like how good it was.
0: Cause they were gonna be like
1: 295, I, I think. 275 yeah. was their going rate. And at the time I had just sort of started to get into foster and I was like, I don't know how they're doing this. Mm-hmm. I don't know, I don't know. And, and 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 things change, prices change, deals are different depending on who you're working with, but it just felt like this is too good to be true. Mm-hmm. And eventually, they kind of went away.
0: They weren't able to produce their watches. It's the first brand that ever sent us a watch and then ghosted us. Yeah, they ghosted us. Garrett, if you're listening, we, we really liked
1: your watch. I'm sorry it didn't work out. If if you want it back, it's sitting in a box on my shelf. Please contact me. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. all, all that to say, uh, you, you know, these, these guys were going to do a really cool thing. Yeah, they were. But at the end of the day... Because of this market and how hard it is to get into, they were forced to cater to expectations in a way that made them ultimately impossible. It made it ultimately impossible for them to succeed.
0: Yeah, they weren't viable because they were a victim of the value of the Chinese manufacturing process.
1: That's right. So... So, so it, it makes sense for us as consumers to always want to get the best possible product for the best possible price. And, and you look at a company like Steel Dive or Mercur or, you know, any number of these quote unquote mushroom brands. I don't love that term, but I, I think generally people know what we're talking about. But, but these factory brands mm-hmm. that are selling... Uh...
0: But if we look at Spinnaker, Aviate, we look at that yeah. group... They're doing a similar thing, but because they they can operate in volume in the same way that Seiko can, in the same way that yeah. that any of these other big brands can. It's because they have nine brands in their catalog.
1: That's right. And they're making bigger scale and they're using
0: different venues to sell the watches. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. But small brands aren't doing that because it's just a couple dudes in a basement. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Can't work at scale. And are victims of the value of Chinese manufacturing. But that's it. Yeah. We've covered it all. We are, we are We have given you all the information you need about Chinese watch manufacturing. We sure have. It has made all of this possible and has driven down prices in such a way that my man Everett needs to double his margin on his next run. Yeah, you're going to have to spend more. Someday you at home are going to have to spend a little bit more. Which sucks because that, you know, we got really interested in watches and kind of that golden era of companies not realizing that they weren't charging enough. That that people really were selling thousand dollar watches for $350, $400. And we got to reap the benefits of that. And now they are paying the price. Andrew, before we wrap up today,
1: I I would like to, if you're still here, thank you for being here. Uh, I want to give you some context on why we did this episode today. So we had asked somebody to come on the show to have this conversation. And after that conversation, you and I, Andrew, were both a little bit underwhelmed at where we had gotten. And we wanted to have the conversation in a little bit more comprehensive way. We both spent some time thinking about what we wanted to talk about. And... Uh, in, in particular, you, Andrew, really kind of dialed down, drilled down on the things that we we, we kind of wanted to talk about that we struggled to get out in that conversation. So um, all, all that to say, we're not experts. And it, it, this is a hard conversation to have because the people who know about the industry are reluctant for any number of reasons to to really dish. We're always happy to dish, but we only know so much. So if we made any mistakes or if we misrepresented things or if we generalize things in inappropriate ways apologies with that said we did want to revisit this topic have a little bit more deep kind of straightforward conversation about it yes is that fair yes okay all that to say i don't think we've covered i don't think we've done it no with that said i do think we're done for the day yeah anything you want to add before we move on no andrew other things what do you got
0: I got a new knife recently. Oh, boy. hmm Is that why you're missing your pinky? No, that was from a different one. It's not important. <clears throat> so I have always done all of my carving and all of my roast cutting with a chef's knife. Because that's what I had. And because the chef's knife is like a wonderful tool. It's a great tool. I want to get a bigger one. I want think I want like a toy. Tw- not, that's not for this conversation. <clears throat> um, I recently used a slicer carving a roast. And I was like, oh, like a, uh,
1: like a, like a 1980s Clark Griswold, like a, like a bread electric. Knife. Oh, no, oh, not okay. like a, no,
0: not like a, I, I <laughs> not one of those, but a scallop slicer, which we usually refer to as a bread knife. I'm just picturing Tim Curry cutting up Eddie. Okay, keep going. Uh, So I got one. I got a Dexter Russell SaniSafe 12-inch scalloped slicer.
1: Dexter Russell, my favorite knife brand.
0: Yeah, they're pretty close to it for me. In the way of utility kitchen knives, I think I will always have Dexter Russells on my knife block. Same. For like my chef's knives, I want something a little bit different for these are money so i got this 12 inch slicer i've been using it on bread and all the other normal slicing things over the last couple weeks but today when i pulled that tri-tip roast off the grill and i let it rest and then i hit that slicer to it it was perfect i mean the slice you got was perfect it was perfect was like at the at the end right that those were the lazy slices like slice us up put it in the tupperware get it in the fridge because we're in like the chaos of sam was gone for dinner and bedtime tonight so it was like it was me trying to wrangle bedtimes wrangle dogs and get food put away so dogs didn't eat the rest of my food because if they ate that tri-tip i would have they would have gone to the farm tonight um this thing is money. We've talked about Dexter, Dexter Russell knives before. I have a couple Dexter Russells. I have a one of their boning knives. I have one of their breaking knives. I'm sure you've got a good handful.
1: Yeah, I've got I've got a couple paring knives, and I've got my my sort of go to
0: eight inch chef's knife. The mm-hmm. Dexter Russell, Yep. And these are the white handle utility yep. commercial kitchen knives that don't cost very much. Yeah, I think that chef's knife was like 21 bucks. So this was 35 bucks for the 12 inch slicer. They have a couple different lengths. If you do any carving of roasts at any regularity, if you carve your Thanksgiving turkey every year, this is money. This is perfect. It did exactly what I did. We're talking razor thin, not quite deli meat thin slices on the intentional one. It was killer. I regret not having had this already. Cool. I failed myself, but I have rectified the error. and I, I still kind of wish it was one of those electrics. You know, uh, when I was a kid, we used to use those on Thanksgiving yeah. to carve the turkey, and they are scary. I was allowed to use one as a child, as like six, seven, eight-year-old kid. <laughs> like, carve the turkey up, and, and like grandma would be like, have the the fork in the top of the turkey and she's like here's your chainsaw get to work boy (laughs) (laughs) yeah i mean it's it's like a hedge trimmer chainsaw those are so scary (laughs) what a terrible thing the 80s and 90s were bad
1: andrew do you know anything about instant photography you mean like digital photography? No. I mean like a
0: Polaroid
1: camera.
0: Do you I know like, what a Polaroid camera I'm, is? I'm familiar with Polaroids, and I know that they're having a resurgence. They are. So I um, was recently requested by a
1: lady who sleeps in my bed and occasionally has sex with me to get an instant camera and was given a set of options that says, I'm looking at this one, this one, or this one. And all of the options were 50 to 60 bucks. Do you know where this story is going? Yeah, I do. Yeah, (laughs) I do. And so me being me, which is the same as you, and I don't mean you, Andrew. I mean, you listening to this podcast was like,
0: you can do better.
1: I better just take a minute and make sure we're making the right decision here. So, this was about an afternoon.
0: Why did she want Polaroid?
1: You know, so you, you you already mentioned and it's true that these instant instant photography is having a moment, right? It's part of this whole return to analog and uh, there, there's this it, it, it's it's sexy right now. It's, people like it. Kids like it. People like this. And there's a project that is not really important that this thing was going to be incorporated into. I'm judging.
0: We talk yeah. about watches an hour every week and yeah. you guys listen. So judging with me. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Exactly. We're, we
1: have no We're room. the dummies. We have no room
0: to judge. We're not cool. So Kim I, was cool because she wants a Polaroid like everyone else. <laughs>
1: I get into this thing and I've been given this list of three. 60 ish 60 to $80 cameras. And I'm like, you know, something about a $60 or a $80 camera. just doesn't feel right to me. Like uh, Polaroids in their heyday weren't even 60, 80 bucks. And so of course I get into this and I start and, and I, and what I find is that there are really a lot of fairly cool instant cameras that are being produced right now. So there's a company called Lomography, that's making stuff. Canon's got some stuff out there. Polaroid, of course, is still a player. Um, Fujifilm is a player. Fujifilm is probably the right now biggest player. That tracks. And the 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 differences are film stocks. You, you, you yeah, know, what cartridges running? Yeah, not, not cheap. Not cheap. You know, you're looking at 50 cents to a dollar per exposure.
0: Okay. That's not. T- too terrible. Yeah, it, it is what it is. I think right? like 20, 20 exposures per cartridge.
1: This whole this whole search led me to a camera called the Fuji Instax Mini Evo. All right. So this is a instant camera that makes prints that are the 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 popular nomenclature is credit card sized which is a different size than the than the polaroid of old right we we all know that two by three shake it shake it like like a polaroid 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 picture picture. (laughs) correct these are slightly smaller so they're credit card size um I found this camera. I love the aesthetics. It, 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 that was the thing that drew
0: me to it. I see yeah. this thing and I'm like, because oh. this is a camera that when she's done with it, you're gonna start carrying it. Because it, her her that's right excitement with it will be fleeting. Like, yeah. oh, this is sexy. Yeah, and then in like three years, you'll still be dragging this bitch around. And this
1: is sexy. not your wife, the camera. And so I start looking into it, and I'm looking at a, there's a couple of different Fujis. So and, and and this is I will say probably the hardest to get and the most expensive instant camera you can buy today maybe not the most expensive but amongst the most expensive so top tier shit i think i for a refurb paid 285 dollars which it's like a basically like new in box Mm -hmm. refurb um
0: but it's delightful andrew it is oh it's really cool it is delightful so has film and light effects built in This, what it
1: actually is, is a digital camera with a printer. Mm -hmm. So it takes digital images, stores them, and then can be printed with the pull of this lever that is very analog feeling and uh, really sort of simulates a winding and it even ratchets like you're winding, but you use that lever to print, so you select the image you want, you apply the digital effects that you want, boom, boom, pow, it prints up an image, which you then shake it, shake, shake it. Uh, you actually don't have to do that,
0: by the way. Uh because no, it's printed, it's not an exposure.
1: Golly, I'm, this thing do you is. You have so... to put
0: toner in it. it that or is it built into the cartridge? It, it's an exposure,
1: it's an actual exposure. So the printer. Exposes onto the film just like normal film and you get a print.
0: It's it's an exposure printer, is what that it is. It is quite a little piece of technology. Yeah. It's also really nice because then you're not going to get those stupid Polaroids with like everyone's eyes closed. You can That's be right. deliberate about what you're printing. You can
1: take four different versions, review them, and print the one you want. Yeah. It is really clever it's a good marriage of the technologies modern feeling and just a lot of fun and so i this thing this turned into like a a request from my wife to take a look at these cameras and pick one to something that i'm now like bad about it i'm having so much fun with this thing it's a big spend. now i will say there are other options so it came down to really two different cameras for me. So f- first I decided we really ought to be buying a Fuji because the Insta- Instax film system is the best. I'm not going to bore you with why that is, but versus the Polaroid or the Kodak options, Instax is more widely available, more affordable, affordable and better. Uh, so looking at Fuji's now, Fuji has a very, very popular. And in fact, if you see a kid with an instant camera, it's likely to be an Instax mini 10 or 11, or perhaps now 12, these things are like under hundred bucks, but they're analog. They are very, very analog. They're simple machines. You're not getting to review. You're not applying effects, so I went with the little bit sexier, juicier option, which you know you're you're want to do. Which I'm want to do, uh, and I'm very happy I did. Although I may have had just as much fun with an eighty dollar
0: Instax twelve. You wouldn't have. Nah, who knows, right? Because you can push your SD card into this. Yes, and take any photo that you already like taken off of any other platform correct, and put it into one of these credit card film options. Correct. Which is far easier than trying to replicate that anywhere else.
1: That's right. You can take any image, stick it in there, and make it into a Polaroid picture. I'm going to have so many nudies. <laughs> I'm going to need to borrow it. Yeah. It, they're really cool, man. Uh, I'm, I'm super into it. It's been a lot of fun. Uh, we haven't done all that much shooting with it, but it's like, it, it, you know, and, and the camera is sort of secondary at that point, but the camera on this thing's pretty decent. It, it's not like we're not taking world-class landscapes with this thing. Obviously you get the lens, the lens is what the lens, you have an optical zoom, which is pretty decent, but I mean, the, it's, it's a fairly wide angle, which is great. So you, a lot of, you spend a lot of time zoomed in, but it's nice to have that width. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's cool. It's this is a pretty cool, pretty cool contraption. I did not expect to be into this at all, then got into it and now I'm sort of just enamored by it.
0: I dig it. That's a cool technology. Let think of all the credit card portraits you can make now, right? <laughs> that's right. Every Christmas card. that's right. Just a credit card portrait of my nudes bathroom selfie yeah andrew what else do
1: we need to talk about today man
0: Uh, i think nothing i think we've done it we've achieved the goal comprehensive look at chinese manufacturing wonderful we we're really (laughs) good at this you know we're professionals
1: hey you guys thanks for joining us for this episode of 40 and 20 the watch clicker podcast you can check us out at watchclicker.com, which is where we post every single episode of this podcast and articles reviews I'm going to tease something. We've got a really cool announcement, which is going to be something you can buy. Yeah. Very soon. Uh, it's from the Polaroid though. Yeah. You, you can also check us out on our socials at watch clicker or at 40 and 20 underscore watch clicker on Instagram. If you'd like to support us and Oh boy. We do hope you want to support us. You can do that at patreon.com slash 40 and 20. That's where we get all the money that we need for hosting of the website, the podcast, software, hardware, etc. Check us out. Patreon.com slash 40 and 20. Uh, and yeah, don't forget to tune back in next Thursday for another hour of watches, food, drinks, life, and other things we like.
0: Bye-bye.